morning. Uh, today's teaching is from Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 to 21, if you want to find that in your Bibles. So in, uh, in today's passage, uh, we're going to be reading of a sequence of events that happen as a result of sibling rivalry, um, something which I feel like I'm a little bit of an expert in, if I'm honest, considering my older sister, Kerry, and I uh, are about as competitive as I think it's possible for two siblings to be. Um, growing up, we'd often be getting into arguments and competing with one another, and that still continues today. Uh, just last weekend, we were away as a family. Um, I've not lived at home for nearly 10 years now, um, and yet we went away as a family, and um, yeah, it descended into yet another argument over a game. Um, so much so, actually, that my brother-in-law, Sam, even refuses to play Monopoly with us now. He says it's just not fun. So um, last week, Mike Duff was here, and he was speaking to us from Genesis 21, verses 1 to 7. Um, and we saw, we saw last week the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah with the birth of their son Isaac. Um, so those, la- those first, seven chap- first seven verses of chapter 21 paint this lovely picture of life in Abraham's family. Um, the joy of having this, this baby boy which God had promised and Sarah had considered just impossible. Um, and so last week... It was this idyllic family life. Um, But then today's passage, verses 8 to 21, paint a new picture of life in Abraham's family. Um, And it's not quite as filled with joy. And and the outcome um, results in some real heartache for Abraham. So let's, uh, let's read Genesis 21, verses 8 to 21 together. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast, but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking, and she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son, but God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up your word to you this morning. We praise you for the fact that we can 
um, that we can hear directly from your mouth. We just pray that as we, um, as we read from your word, as we dive into it, we just pray that you'll speak into our hearts and minds, uh, challenge us, encourage us, um, give us the words that we need to hear. Father God, we just pray that you'll be at work over the course of this, um, this teaching. And we just pray that you'll, um, you'll allow us to go away from here changed, um, challenged or encouraged, whatever it is that you, you need for us this morning. We just pray that you'll be at work. Amen. <clears throat> so we come into this story in the midst of a celebration. Abraham and Sarah have thrown a feast to celebrate Isaac, growing from infancy into childhood. This child that they prayed for for years is growing, and they want to celebrate it with family and friends. But in Sarah's eyes, one thing is preventing it from being the perfect day, Ishmael. Verse 9 says that Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. Um, it was way back in last year uh, that we looked at Genesis chapter 16 and the story of Hagar the Egyptian. And that story itself begins in Genesis chapter 12 when God made a promise to Abraham. This is what it says in Genesis 12 verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God made this promise to Abraham that he would turn him into a great nation. Um, God later promised that the families um, and the people from Abraham's own offspring would be like the dust of the earth. And so Abraham and Sarah waited and waited until they started to get itchy feet and they started to doubt. We heard last week that God did keep his promise and that their son Isaac was born according to that promise. But before that time, and what we looked at last year, in the time between God saying that he would provide an heir and God fulfilling that promise, Abraham and Sarah got tired of waiting. God had made a promise to them, but they took things into their own hands. Abraham hatched a plan to adopt one of his servants to be his heir, and then God stepped in and said, this man shall not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So again, Abraham and Sarah waited, but then got restless. And what we looked at last year in Genesis 16, Sarah told Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave, and that's Hagar. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So Abraham agreed and did exactly that. And Abraham had a son called Ishmael by Hagar. This was not God's plan. This was not the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham or Sarah. This was two people taking things into their own hands and bypassing God. It's also worth knowing that during the pregnancy, we read in Genesis 16, that Hagar and Sarah had a bit of friction that seemed to be rooted in resentment from each side. So this was not an easy relationship in the first place between Sarah and Hagar. It's hard to imagine what the atmosphere must have been like around the dinner table but it wouldn't have been easy. I'm fairly certain that they didn't play Monopoly anyway. And actually, this was their family situation for 14 years until Isaac was born. And as we learned last week, eventually, Abraham and Sarah did have that son according to God's plan called Isaac. God fulfilled his promise in the end, but it took a while for Abraham and Sarah to allow him to do it. Because of their insistence on doing things their own way, 
It caused them problems later in life, as we read about just now in Genesis 21. And so the story that we've just read, this great feast is underway. Everyone's having a great time until Sarah spots Ishmael causing trouble. At this point, Ishmael would have been 15 or 16 years old. So he's a teenager. He's not a baby as we might expect when we first read it. He's a grown, he's a grown man almost. And so that might explain his behavior a little bit more. The way that the NIV puts it is that Ishmael was mocking. The suggestion seems to be that he was mocking the notion that Isaac was Abraham's precious heir. He himself, of course, being the first son that was born to Abraham. Maybe he was mocking out of jealousy at the attention that this young child was receiving, no longer being the apple of Abraham's eye. As the younger child in my own family, I can't empathize at all with Ishmael and the jealousy that he might have had. But I'm sure my older sister was regularly jealous of me growing up. But either way, regardless of what it was that caused it, Sarah didn't respond well to Ishmael's mocking. And she told Abraham to get rid of both Ishmael and his mother Hagar. So for Sarah, maybe this was just the opportunity that she'd been waiting for. Or maybe it was the last straw. She had no attachment at all to Ishmael. And her relationship with Hagar had always been strained. Getting rid of Ishmael would restore the cosy family setting she'd always imagined for herself, Abraham, and their new son, Isaac, the heir to Abraham's inheritance and God's promise. Hagar and Ishmael leaving was the ideal solution for Sarah, but not for Abraham, because verse 11 tells us that he was greatly distressed with this request. Just consider a moment his dilemma. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. He has a wife and a young son whose comfort and happiness was clearly of great importance to him. But he also had another son who of course must mean an awful lot to him. I don't think that we consider that, I don't think we can consider that just because Ishmael was not the son and heir that was promised to Abraham, that Abraham would not have loved and cared for his teenage son. Because of course he did. And so his situation seemed impossible. How could he possibly send his son and his mother away from the settlement into the unforgiving environment of the desert surrounding them? It's an impossible decision. Fortunately for Abraham, however, Sarah's demand tied in perfectly with God's plan for Ishmael. God reassured Adam. In verse 12, he says, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave women. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So God makes a new promise to Abraham. Don't worry, don't be concerned. I've got the situation under control. I have a plan for Ishmael, but it requires you handing control over completely to me. I wonder how we handle situations like this when we're given instruction by God or when we're told not to worry, to trust God's plan or to give up control of something that we care about. It's in our human nature to want to be in control of our lives and the things in our lives. We like the comfort of being the ones in charge. And so much of what the world around us tells us, feeds that idea as well. Take control of you. Take care of you. Control your destiny. Put yourself number one. But here, God is asking David to give up control. 
to hand over something he cares about to God with the promise that God is in control. So I wonder, is there something in your life that you're not willing to give up control of to God? It might be that you have your life mapped out. You know every stop sign on the way. University, get a career, marriage, children, retirement. What if God is calling you to give up one or all of those things and hand over control of your life to him? It might be the career that you're in. Maybe God is calling you to something else which requires change or stepping out of a job without the certainty of a new one. It might be that God is calling you to step into a ministry to give up time to serve him. It might even be your precious Friday evenings or Wednesday mornings. It might be that God is calling you to give financially for his work. Or it might be that he is demanding more of your time in prayer and study, which you would rather dedicate to TV. Is there something in your life that God is asking you to give up for his sake? Something that you're clinging on to because giving it up would be uncomfortable or uncertain? Is there something that you have control over that you should be giving over to God? God is asking David to give up control of something really dear to him, to hand over something he cares about to God with the promise that God is in control. It's always scary giving up control of the things in our lives. But for David, he had seen God fulfill his promises in the past. Although he got impatient and tried to step in himself, eventually David seen that God is someone who keeps his promises. David seen God fulfill his promise through his son Isaac. So when David responds to God's call to not be distressed, to not worry, he does so as someone who knows a God that keeps his promises. David's knowledge and experience of God is that that he is good that he keeps his word. And whilst it must have been utterly heart-wrenching for him to send the son off into the desert, he knew that if God promised to keep Ishmael safe, that God would do exactly that. I'd love to have that certainty that David clearly has here. That comes from a place of seeking God's direction, following it, and seeing God's faithfulness. I really believe that the more we seek God's direction, and follow his instruction, the more we trust him, the more we see him work in our lives. We have to ask God to guide us through prayer, through the reading of his word and instruction in the Bible and following his direction. And that might not come to us the same way that it came to Moses. It might come from what we read in his word in the Bible. It might come just from the leanings of our heart It might come from doors that we test and discover some open and some closed. But we can't realistically expect God to speak to us or be at work in our lives unless we ask him to, unless we give him opportunity to and invite him to. So David puts his trust in God, that God will take care of Ishmael and Hagar. He loads up some water and sends them out into the desert. Let's have a look at Hagar and the situation that she found herself in. Verses 14 to 16 tell quite a depressing account. Having been loaded up with water, Hagar wandered in the desert with her son. 
just for a moment, again, transport yourself into her situation. This mess is in no way her own doing. She found herself caught up in the middle of Abraham and Sarah's situation without any of her own say. She wasn't part of the original scheme to subvert God's plan for Abraham's heir. And yet she found herself having a child with a man who was not her husband and who had not had much regard for her situation. Following that, a conflict with Sarah caused her to run away into the desert the first time before God came to her in chapter 16 and told her to go back to Abraham and Sarah and promised that he would bless her child. And so she did. And then years later, this rift with Sarah happened again and she finds herself wandering the desert once again with nothing but her son and just some water. And it's quite clear that it didn't take her long to give up hope. We're told that when she ran out of water, she put Ishmael under a bush, then went and sat down far enough away from him that she wouldn't have to watch him die. Hagar's life went downhill pretty fast when she and Ishmael were sent out into the desert. And reading what the Bible tells us about her life, her life hadn't exactly started too far up that hill either. She was a slave. She was used as a part of Abraham and Sarah's attempts to subvert God's plan. She was at odds with Sarah for years. Finally, she was cast out. She must be wondering what she did wrong, how her life ended up that way. As she sat in the desert in expectation of the death of her son and then herself, she must have been wondering where God was in all of it. When God promised to bless her son in Genesis 16, she can't have expected it to end up that way. I'm sure that we've all felt like Hagar. I'm sure that we've all felt the same way that Hagar felt at some point in our lives. Far from God, not knowing where to turn, feeling crushed by the weight of the world, asking where God is in our own situations. We all face troubles in some form, whether that's in our families, in our workplaces, or school, or college. It might be the broken relationships in our lives or in the lives of the people that are close to us. Some of us face financial strains, the expectations of the world, the actions of others. Some even face persecution for their faith. And when these troubles come, sometimes we can get over it fairly quickly, but other times it can really weigh us down and we can feel like there's no way out. For Hagar, it felt like the end of the road, the end of what must have been a pretty hard time in her life. But into what seemed for her an impossible situation stepped God. Hearing the cries of her son, God brought salvation to Hagar and Ishmael. Back in Genesis 16, when Hagar and Sarah had that big conflict, Hagar was promised by God that he would take care of her and Ishmael. Like Abraham, she had to trust in God and have, have faith that he would act as he said he would. And he did. God stepped into that situation in the way that he promised he would. I'm sure that Hagar would have preferred it to have happened sooner. But in God's perfect timing, he stepped in and saved Hagar and her son Ishmael. I'm sure again that we can relate to that. That sometimes we wish that God would step in sooner. That he would be at work 
in the time that we hope. But this is just an account of God's perfect timing when he stepped in and saved Hagar and Ishmael. And looking at Ishmael, he too found himself in this horrible situation. The story of his life is almost as tragic. He'd been usurped by this new son of Abraham and Sarah. His own father had tossed him out into the desert. He was out of water, left under a bush, probably to die. It seems so unfair when we read of the, the story of Hagar and Ishmael. But God's ways are greater than our ways. God's understanding is beyond our understanding. We don't know why Hagar and Ishmael went through this trial that was not entirely of their own doing. The name Ishmael means God hears and God heard. Verse 17 told us that God heard the boy crying. This up here is Psalm 10, 17. It says, Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will hear their cries and comfort them. God heard Ishmael's cries. And an angel of the Lord came to Hagar and told her once again that God would make Ishmael into a great nation. He opened her eyes to a well of water and, he was and she was able to give Ishmael a drink. The passage doesn't tell us that God provided more than that at the time, but clearly he did. Clearly God stayed with and provided for Hagar and Ishmael because verse 20 then tells us that God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived and worked and married and thrived in the desert of Paran because God was with him. And God does the same for us. He doesn't step in to save and then disappear. God is always with us. It's really quite an astounding truth to know about our God as well. That when we are at our lowest points, when we are in our greatest need, God is there. But also in our greatest moments, in our triumphs, he's there as well. The amazing truth of the gospel is that because of sin, we, like Hagar and Ishmael, could have been considered on the verge of death. With no escape, no way to free ourselves from the grips of sin. But God stepped in, provided a way through Jesus Christ for us to be saved. Not only that, but he continues to be at work in our lives. He gives us life, a relationship, a way to know him through the Holy Spirit. And although it would be grace beyond understanding just to be saved, God continues to be with us and provide for us and help us to grow and thrive in the same way that Ishmael was able to by his hand. And this wonder of the gospel is combined with the theme of Genesis 21, of God being with his people, fulfilling his promises. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 he takes this account of Abraham and Ishmael and Hagar and he, he uses it to help the church, the church in Galatia and the readers of this letter, including us. It helps us understand the work of the gospel and God's plan for his people. Paul uses it as an allegory. So if you want to turn with me, we're going to read Genesis chapter 4. Sorry, Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to read to chapter 5, verse 1. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written, 
that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It's for freedom that Christ has, has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So the Apostle Paul's church is talking to the Christian church in Galatia. He refers back to this story of Hagar and Ishmael. He uses it to help the church understand the work of the gospel, God's plan for his people, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that all of mankind can be set free from the slavery of sin, that all of mankind can know a relationship with the creator God, and that all of mankind can know an eternity with him through repentance of sin and dedicating their life to God and to Christ. Paul is speaking to new Christians who have heard this gospel, the gospel of Jesus, and responded to it by giving their lives to Christ. Christians who, like all who respond to the gospel, no longer are under the requirements of the law to know God. The law being the rules and commands which were given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai showed the Jews how they must live to meet God's standards of perfection and holiness. But what Jesus Christ did on the cross meant that fulfillment of the law no longer is the only way to righteousness. Paul is saying you've been set free from the need to fulfill the law. So why do you still desire to be under it? I don't believe that those early Christians in the church in Galatia were saying to one another over coffee before the service, I wish we were still under the law. I wish we still required the need for a priest to meet to mediate between us and God. I wish there was a list of things that we had to do to meet God's requirements. The amazing news of the gospel of Jesus is that Christ stepped in and met God's requirements on our behalf. And so we no longer depend on our own efforts for God to accept us. He accepts us because of Jesus Christ. But it does seem that Paul had witnessed in this church some Christians who had fallen into the trap that so many of us fall into, turning their faith into religion, forgetting the freedom that the gospel brings and bringing legalism into their Christian lives. 
Maybe it was a case of expecting to find more favor with God by praying more, hoping that they will earn more reward by serving more than those around them or knowing the scriptures better than others, thinking that they could earn God's favor. Maybe even harking back to the good old days when salvation was in their own hands. Paul says you want to be under the law again even though you have been set free from it. You want to be subject to the law which requires your own efforts, your own goodness, your own righteousness. He says if that's the case then you will be judged according to the law and you cannot uphold it. You will be buried under the weight of it. Why would you want that, Paul is saying? But we do the same thing sometimes. And mostly it's not a conscious, conscious thing, but just a bit of our old sinful nature creeping in or just forgetting the truth of the gospel. It's easy to think that God will bless us more, show us more favor if we pray regularly, that if we read our Bible for a designated amount of time each day, that God will show us more favor, that if we serve God, he will give us more. Christ died for us because we can never do enough to earn God's salvation, to earn God's favor. Because fulfilling the law given on Mount Sinai is not possible for us to do. If it's in our own hands, we can never meet God's standards. But Jesus lived a life that met those standards perfectly. And then he laid down his life for us. So even though we've been set free from any need to earn salvation, sometimes we slip back into this mindset of trying to pray our way to blessing or serving for God's favor. Rather, we should pray, read our Bibles, serve out of love for the God that has set us free from the sins that we were once slaves to. Not hoping that that we will be blessed more and not hoping that we will find more favor from him but because we know that we have been blessed, because we know that we've been shown favor well beyond what we deserve. That should bring out a love for God in us, and that's why we do those things. Like I say, I doubt that the church were saying to Paul, can we have the law back again? We miss those days. Rather, I suspect that Paul had noticed a trend of legalism, religiosity, tradition creeping back into the lives of those Christians. The cross plus works, the cross plus, plus actions, the cross plus earning. Paul reminds them that the weight of the law will bury them. It's the cross of Jesus Christ alone that sets them free. I think it's so important for us as Christians today to be constantly assessing ourselves and our relationship with God to ensure that we don't get caught into this same spiral of assuming that we can find or earn more favor with God by the things that we do. Rather, let's live in the freedom that has been bought for us by Jesus Christ. Let's pray and worship and learn and read out of love for him, rather than because we believe that we can earn more of what we already have. We are no longer slaves to sin, so why would we not live as free people? And we all know what it means to be slaves to sin and the sins that keep us away from God. Whether it's the actions that we do on a daily basis that we know we shouldn't be doing. 
when we gossip, even though we know it's sinful, when we watch TV shows or listen to music, things that poison our hearts, that tear us away from loving God, when we give in to temptation rather than fighting against it, when we take part in sin around other people just so that we can fit in rather than taking a stand against it. Love for God and appreciation of what Jesus Christ has done for us should make us want to fight against the sin that once had such a hold of us. That last line there says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We're no longer slaves to sin. So then why would we not live as free people? In that passage, Paul talked of the two sons of Abraham, one born to a slave and one born under the promise of God. The Jews often found great pride in the fact that they were of the lineage of Abraham, that Isaac's son Jacob, later called Israel, was the assurance of their place in the world as God's chosen people. But what Paul is saying here is that salvation and acceptance by God is not found in the ancestral line. Rather, it's found in the promise. John the Baptist and the Gospels pointed to this. Jesus Christ himself made the same points. Abraham's true descendants are not those who boast a perfect genealogy and can prove they are of his blood. Rather, it is those who trusted as Abraham trusted and believed as Abraham believed in the one true God. And the promise and the blessing of eternal life is promised not to those who claim Abraham as an earthly ancestor, but to any who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 9. If we can have the next slide, please. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Those are my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are his descendants, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So in other words... It's not the children by physical descent from Abraham that are God's children, but it is the children of the promise as regarded by Abraham's offspring. And so this morning, if you believe Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And that offer stands for Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, trusting in and giving your life to Jesus brings you into the family of Abraham. You're included as heirs with Isaac. 
you're included in the inheritance promised by God to Abraham for his offspring. You're included in the promise of salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Included in the promise of eternity in heaven in the presence of God. Back in Galatians 4, Paul spoke of two Jerusalems. One here on earth, the current Jerusalem equated with Hagar in slavery with her children under the law. And another Jerusalem above, the promised city of God with continual joy and praising and worship and eternity spent in the presence of God where there are no more tears, no more sorrow. This is the Jerusalem that is promised to those that are included in Isaac's inheritance. Anyone who is in Christ. Can I encourage you to read Revelation 21? Find out more about the wonder of this city of God. It's astounding. And it's promised to anyone who's in Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm incredulous at how undeserving I am of that. How undeserving I am to be included in Isaac's inheritance. The grace that is shown by God to me in this way just blows my mind. Paul likens two groups to Isaac and Ishmael. He said in Galatians 4.24, And these things may be taken figuratively, for the two women represent two covenants. He explains that first, as Hagar's child was born into slavery, so are those who are born under the law, slaves to the law. Since they cannot fulfill the law, slaves to sin. But by comparison, Sarah's child was born into freedom. Sarah's child was born under promise. Promised by God for a life of blessing. Paul tells us that those who have faith in Christ are born into freedom from the chains of sin. That's a promise we can attribute to ourselves if we know and love Jesus Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are free from the punishment that sin deserves. We are no longer condemned. We are promised eternal life. We can live in the freedom that Jesus Christ has given us. No longer being weighed down by our attempts to find more favor with God or to act in a way that we hope will elicit more blessings from him. This is the wonderful news of the gospel. And so let's not keep this to ourselves. This inheritance is a free gift to all of mankind. And those that are in our schools and colleges and workplaces and our families, the people that we spend our time with, they all need to hear this gospel so that they too can become part of God's family. That they too can be set free from the slavery of sin and the punishment that that demands. That they can know a future in heaven with God. This is life-changing news. And it needs to be shared. This world is aching and groaning with the pain and the weight of sin. And we know what sets mankind free from that, from that weight. So let's share it. Let's pray. Father God, we just praise you for your word. We praise you for the fact that we can hear from you um, today. 2,000 years after your word was finished, it still speaks into our lives. Um, Father God, we just pray that that... Those things that we've learned this morning, um, that we'll take them, um, we'll go out into this world and that 
Uh, we will allow them to impact our thinking and allow them to impact the way that we live our lives. Father, we praise you for the fact that you're a God that fulfills your promises. We just pray that you'll help us to give over control um, of the things that we want to keep for ourselves. Uh, we just pray that you'll give us a faith to hand over a control of our lives and the things of our future, all the things that we care about, uh, knowing that you're a God that has them in control, that you're a God who cares, God, a God who has a plan. We just praise you for the freedom that we can know through your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the fact that we can be included in this amazing inheritance that we read of, of Isaac's, um, that we can know a future in, in heaven with you. Father, we just pray that you will not allow us to keep that to ourselves. Um, help us to appreciate it, admire it, and to, uh, to live in the freedom that it brings for us, but also to want to go into this world and tell people about it, to share it, to not keep it to ourselves, so that other people too can know you and can know a life without the slavery of sin and a future um, in heaven with you. Amen.